Today's scripture reading is from Book of Luke, chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, let me, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, now know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the reading of God's word. Uh, thanks, Linda, for reading the scripture. It's been, uh, I think, actually three weeks since I actually preached on a Sunday. Uh, we were away for one week and um, had a guest speaker the next week, and then we were at a retreat um, and had another guest speaker, and there were, um, the messages have been all been great. But <clears throat> if you remember three weeks ago, this is the passage where we're looking at and um, it all began when we looked at the story of Mary and Martha, but we've been now dwelling some time here in the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer. And what I want to do today is I want to wrap this up, but also want to use this passage as a segue into our next subject, uh, and that is hope, okay? That is hope. But here in our passage, just to kind of remind us, there, this is the, what we call the Lord's Prayer, and what's ironic is, it's not that Jesus prays this prayer. It's necessarily not his prayer, but it's for the disciples. It's for those people that were asking him, teach us how to pray. And this is what Jesus tells us how to pray. This is the, what we call the model prayer. And it's interesting because the guys that are asking him, they're, they're probably good Jewish men who were probably already praying. They, they probably prayed a lot. Uh, and so yet they ask Jesus, teach us how to pray. And so this is what we're looking at here. And if you look at what Jesus teaches them, the first point is this, and that is this model prayer, which is not just for the disciples, but for everyone, is on a completely different level. Completely different. If you compare the way you pray, when you pray, to the Lord's prayer, if this is the model prayer, I don't come anywhere close to this. I want you to see this again, just a reminder. First of all, notice this. The, the first thing we notice about this prayer is that the content of this prayer is so God-centered. It's what we call theocentric. Look at the petitions. Listen to the petitions. You know this if you've been going to church. Hallowed be your name. Why? Because God is the Holy One. We pray, thy kingdom come. Why? Because God is the King. Give us each day our daily bread. Why? Because God is the provider. Forgive us our sins. Why? Because God is the judge. 
Lead us not into temptation. Why? Because God is the protector and the shepherd. So God-centered. It's all about him. And then it says, hallowed be your name. Did you notice? His name. Not yours. His name. Your kingdom come. His kingdom. His things. Not ours. Your will be done. It's, it's his will we're praying for. Not my will. And so we immediately we get this sense here that the whole prayer is very explicitly God-focused. It's theocentric. Second thing we see about this prayer is this. Not only God-centered, but the a focus is also redemptive. Forgive us of our sins. Lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from evil. Right? They're redemptive in nature. But the third thing we see about this prayer is this. Notice this. Notice the direction of the prayer. Notice the place of which the prayer focuses on. We begin, and God says, every time you pray, don't forget your family status. Say, Father, our Father. But what Father? Who is in heaven? The focus, notice the place of where this prayer goes. Our Father in heaven. Your kingdom, where's the kingdom? Heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is, where? In heaven. And so the overall prayer of this, what we call the model prayer for all of his followers, is that it is completely otherworldly. It's theocentric, it's redemptive, it's heavenly-minded. It's all about him. And I have a problem with that. Because there's got to be some place in this model prayer that he's teaching all the followers to pray, something where we get to ask what we need, right? Uh, uh, we get to think, ask for, for the things that, that we are struggling with. Where, where is that? And then you look very carefully, and you might think, oh, but there is one place in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. There you go. Now the model prayer, yeah, it seemed like it was all about God and heaven and so spiritual and otherworldly, but now it's practical, right? Now you get to ask for our daily bread. And when we say daily bread, oftentimes you think our physical food maybe, or metaphorically, all our basic needs. There you get to ask for something. But wait, okay? If you look very carefully, and we're going to do a quick Bible study here, Give us this day our daily bread is very unique in the Greek, in the original language. It's a unique construction. Give us our daily bread. That's what it really says. But if you look at the Greek in the original, it reads like this. Our daily bread give us today. The noun, bread, and then the verb. And what's weird about this, not weird, but what stands out is that every other petition in the Lord's Prayer begins with a verb, then a noun. Three and three, six. Hallowed be thy name, verb, noun. Literally, come thy kingdom, verb and noun. Done be thy will as in heaven, also on earth, verb and then noun. And then the second three, forgive us, right? Do not lead us, deliver us, all verb and then now. And right in the middle, you have this, give us our daily bread, it's reversed, noun to verb. Our daily bread give us today. And so this is meant to stick out in the Lord's Prayer. What does it mean to pray our daily bread give us today? And in order to know this, here's what I think. 
The word daily is rare. This word that it uses, it's in the Greek, epiousion. Okay, you don't have to remember this, but it's rare. It only occurs twice in the Bible, both times in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew and Luke. But when you look at the English, it translates the word as daily. But if you're really careful about what you're reading and you look at the margin and the notes, you'll notice that most scholars believe it shouldn't be translated daily. It should also be translated tomorrow. Tomorrow's bread, not daily bread, tomorrow's bread. And so when this says, give us this day our daily bread, what we're literally praying is, give us today tomorrow's bread. Now, what does that mean? When he says tomorrow, I don't think it literally means the next 24-hour day. Because if he did, the word for tomorrow, there's a more common word that he could have used. But considering how God-centered this prayer is, how redemptively focused this is, how heavenly-minded the rest of this prayer is, I think he uses this special word, translated daily in your English, to mean more than just the next 24-hour day. Here's what I mean. I don't know if you are a Disneyland fan. I'm not a Disneyland fan or a Disney World fan particularly, just because it's just always so crowded. But if you've ever been, you know how some of the parks are organized, right? There's Fantasyland, there's Adventureland, right? There's Frontierland, and what else? There's Tomorrowland. And when you go to Tomorrowland, if you've ever been there, what is it? Tomorrowland, not the next 24 hours. Tomorrowland, because it's the future. Tomorrow is the future. I think that's the essence of what this word means. So the bread of tomorrow in the Lord's Prayer doesn't mean just the next day of food to come, but it's really talking about the future, right? And so it should read like this. The bread of the tomorrow, the bread of the future, the bread of the age to come, give us today. Here's what I, this means. When you pray, give us this day our daily bread, you're not praying for you, just your physical needs. But what are you praying for? You are praying for a little taste of the age to come, of the future. When you pray, give us this day our daily bread, you're asking for a little taste of heaven, a little taste of the world to come and all its blessings right now in this world. And that's why the rest of the prayer, hallowed be your name, pray for his kingdom to come, and then you pray for his will be done, and then we ask for forgiveness and deliverance and evil. Is it all just a little taste of heaven? And so even in this one supplication where you get to ask something for yourself, it's ultimately heavenly, spiritual in nature. Now, I just want to get that point across. Do you see this? Do you see what kind of people it takes to genuinely pray the Lord's Prayer? It must mean that someone who actually prays like this is someone who actually lives for something desires for something more than just what this world we live in has to offer. More than things like food and clothes and relationships and health and work. As important as those things are, crucial as they are, this prayer that Jesus teaches his followers to pray 
is for someone who believes that there's got to be more than just here and now. And the question I have is this. Who prays like this? Right? Who, who prays? Who really prays like this? Practically, I mean, maybe I'm being cynical. Do you pray like this? I know I don't pray like this because this prayer then, if it's the model prayer for all of his followers, it sounds like a very, very spiritual, mature prayer. You know, the way I learned how to pray was in maybe high school, and they taught you this acronym called ACTS, right? ACTS, each letter represents something. When you pray, you start with adoration, A, and then you start with C, confession, confess your sin, and then you say thanksgiving, T, so you adore, you confess, you give thanks, and only then, the last thing, S, supplication. That's when you can ask. And you know how the things at work, I want to go straight, when I pray, I want to go straight to the supplication. God, this is what I need. But I think about all these other things, and I just run through it. Okay, God, I like you. God, I'm a sinner. God, thank you. And Lord, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. Right? You can't wait to get to the S, the supplication. You go straight to the things you need, the things that you're going through, the things that you need help with, the stuff that you're dealing with right here, right now, right in front of you. And some of it is really hard. So when I look at the Lord's Prayer, when do I get to go to the S? When can I say and pray for things right now for me, right now in this world, the things that I need to pray for? Because to be honest, the Lord's Prayer, as good and as spiritual as it is, sounds so spiritual and otherworldly, so heavenly-minded, that it's no earthly good. Right? But here's the good news. You keep reading this passage from verse 5. And he says, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight, say to him, Friend, give me three loaves of bread. And the friend says, On his journey, I have nothing set before you. And he will answer him, Don't bother, the door is shut. I cannot give you anything. And yet, he says, I will get up and give you anything. He says and later on in our passage, Ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. That's the Lord's Prayer, but then he goes into this whole section about asking, asking for things. And here's the second point that I want to tell you about. If the Lord's Prayer is so otherworldly, so heavenly, the second point is, but God loves to be asked. God loves to be asked. You know, from verses 5 to verse 8, he talks about that friend, and some friend knocks on his door late at night, and he's tired, and he's sleeping. He says, don't bother me. Everyone's in bed. But he says, because of his friend's impudence, he's still going to get up and give him what he needs. That word impudence literally means shameless, bold, persistent. Because his friend is persistent, shameless, and bold, this friend's still going to get up and give him what he needs. If that's true of a friend, how much more God and so we're told here, you've got things you need to ask for. Ask then. Ask. Be shameless. Be bold and persistent. And he says in verse 9, I tell you, if you ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. God wants you to come to ask for him something. I know what the Lord prayer said, but here in the second part, God wants you to come to him and ask. He's saying, I love you. I'm your father. I give you things. Go and ask. Ask for anything. Go all the way. 
God's will is that we as his creature ask him for things. And it's not just his will, it's his delight. Proverbs 15, 8, the prayer of the upright is his delight. He's so eager to hear prayers and respond to them. He says in Isaiah 65, it will also come to pass before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. So God loves to be asked for things because he loves to give. That's why the parable of the persistent widow, this lady who just kept nagging Jesus, nagging him to hear her out. We need to do this because Jesus listens. And this means, then, that God, the creator of the universe, now Jesus, and your Father in heaven, who holds your life in his hands, who rules the world, is the kind of God that loves to be asked for things. Okay? Now, as we move on to the second, or the third point, I want to address some questions. Okay? Lord's Prayer. So spiritual, so sovereign, but good. Fine. Yet, he still loves to be asked, so we should ask. Right? One question I always get is, God, isn't he supposed to be sovereign? Doesn't he already know what's going to happen? Doesn't he appoint what's going to happen? And if everything is appointed because he's a sovereign God, then why should I pray if God already knows? Here's the answer. You have a member in your family that's not a Christian yet, and you really want this person to become a Christian. Should you pray? Part of you says, well, God is sovereign. If he's going to make this person a Christian, he's going to do it with or without my prayer. Maybe. But this is how God works. God says, this person, I will make him a Christian. The question is how? And God says, out of my sovereignty, I will use that other person's prayer. And I will use that other person's sharing to make this person a Christian. So ask. Ask. Second question we might have is this. Now, here's the million-dollar question. If I ask, will God really give me things if I ask him? The answer is you have every reason to say yes. Remember last time, family status. Who do you pray to? Father. He's not just God. He's Father God. That's the whole point of the Lord's Prayer, right? But then when you look in our passage in verse 11, this is what he tries to explain. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you who are evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give? Okay? So he will give. That's what he says. If you know how to give good things to your kids, how much more will your father in heaven give? And here's the last question. But what do I do if I don't get what I ask for? What do I do when God says no? You know you could say no. It's still a response. No. You know, it's not too hard to see from our passage here, this whole image of the father and parent thing. Kids are hungry. So they say, Dad, Mom, can we go to Baskin-Robbins for dinner? Why? Because it's so good. And I don't know if you're a parent, you might. If you do, you're a bad parent for dinner. I mean, but generally, it's not the most healthiest dinner, is it? But little kids don't know that. They just like eating ice cream. Why? Because it tastes good. When in fact, too much of it could be really bad. 
Sometimes when we pray, we think we're asking for something good. We think we're asking for fish and eggs, like the verse says. But in actuality, God says, no, you're asking for scorpions and snakes. And so God says no, like a parent would say no. Why? Because we're like his children that sometimes don't really know what to ask for. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. In other words, as your Father in heaven, sometimes God says no. Remember our story of Martha and Mary? Martha asked, Mary, or Martha asked Jesus, Jesus, can you get Mary to help me in the kitchen? I'm busy, I need her help. What does Jesus say? No. He says no all the time. Because it's the Father in heaven who knows what's best. I'm going to be very honest with you. I know we love talking about this, but you ever have those long conversations where you ask yourselves the question, what would I do if I won the lottery? It's an old question, but it's amazing how long people could have a discussion on the same old question. This is what I would do. This is what I would do. This is what, you know, I've never played the lottery, but man, sometimes I pray, can I win the lottery? Money is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And God, I know he's going to say no. Why? Because I know, and this one I know, if I won the lottery, you will not see me in church. All right? I'll be a worse sinner than I am already. And I think he knows that. I'm never going to win the lottery. And that's why I never play. I pray so many times where God says no. Well, God gives, asking you to receive. So I prayed. When I was in high school, going to, uh, applying for college, I had all the numbers, so I applied to Harvard and Yale. I wanted to go to Harvard and Yale. Little did I know that you need more than just the numbers. Didn't go. I ended up going to Michigan, a safety school back then. I ended up loving Michigan, so I prayed because my parents said, well, you know, it's too expensive. It's out-of-state tuition. You need to transfer. Can you transfer? And I started praying. I said, as a college student, God, help me to stay. I don't want to leave Michigan. I don't want to go. I don't want to transfer. Ended up going to Rutgers. Met my wife. Ironically, that's where my faith grew. But I was pre-med. And even at Rutgers, I was pre-med. I took the MCATs twice. I was ready to go. I needed to do better. I needed to get more. And it's like, God, I don't know if I could get into med school. Help me. Help me get into med school. I went to seminary. God said no. And it's not what I had in mind originally. But today I'm your pastor. God is still good. He still gave. But he knew what's best. Look at our passage. Verse 13, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give what? Not gifts, the Holy Spirit who asks him. Holy Spirit? Wait a minute, that's not what I had in mind. If you as a parent know how to give good gifts to your children, I would think as a father in heaven, you would give good gifts to me. He says, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. It's not what I expected. And I think what Jesus is saying is this. He is saying, if you know or knew what you really needed, if you knew everything that God knows, your Father in heaven knows, you'd ask for the Holy Spirit. And it's his job to give you a relationship with him. God gives, Jesus gives, and I think what this passage teaches us, when God says no, it means this. Jesus will always 
give you exactly what you would ask for if you knew everything he knows. He will always give everything you would ask for exactly if, he, if you knew everything the Father knows. Okay? Now here's the last question, and this is hard, and this is where I need to digress a little bit, but we'll segue into the next series. Okay, fine. Lottery, I thought it was good. It's not good. It's bad for me. I get that, and that's why God says, no, I can live with that. But what if you're praying for something really, really bad? What if you're praying for someone who is sick? What if you're praying for a a, a relationship in your family that's about to fall apart? What if you're praying for, for just sustenance, food, money, or work, anything, to put just bread on the table? What if you're praying for disease? How could he not answer that prayer? How could he, why would he say no to that? What if someone's lying on this bed ready to pass any moment for some accident? How could he not provide healing? Isn't that good? Isn't that a good thing? Why wouldn't God answer? Why would he say no to that? A couple weeks ago, uh, my friend Pastor Ben from San Francisco, he came out to visit New York with his family for the first time, but I uh, visited his church end of April last uh, spring, and I spoke at his men's retreat. There was an assistant pastor that he has, young 30s, uh, great guy, really nice, you know, very active, very, very faithful, has a family, you know, two, two little girls, I think, um, in our presbytery. And, uh, you know, just completely normal, playing basketball, the retreat, talking a lot, hanging out a lot. I come back from the retreat, uh, two weeks later, I get a notice that he's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic cancer at 30-some years old. No clue. They did a test, and it, it, it spread. It spread to his liver. It spread to, I think, his lungs. It's gone. What do you think people did in his church? They prayed. They prayed. God Heal. Do something. He's got a blog. He's still, he's still there. His wife, two little kids. Wife doesn't know what to do. She's, she's going crazy. He's got to go through six of the most intensive chemo in, ever. Just praying and asking for prayer. That he'll just make it to the next chemo. Some days are good, some days are bad. And they're still praying. There's no reason God wouldn't answer that prayer, would he? Wouldn't he answer that prayer? Isn't that fish and egg? That's not a scorpion snake. If God says no, here's the answer. I don't know. I don't know. We believe in this big, sovereign God that the Lord's Prayer talks about. It's supposed to be all-powerful, all-good. We're supposed to be this Father who cares for his children in heaven, and he cares. So why wouldn't he answer those kind of prayers all the time? 
for those hard and horrible things like sickness, disease, pain, broken relationships. And so what happens in my mind, and I'm sure in many people's mind, is this. Well, it looks like prayer doesn't really work. If he says no, it looks like prayer fails. And if prayer fails, it looks like God fails. And so when we're going through something very hard and very difficult and there seems to be no answer, we get angry, angry at God. We say, this is unfair. This is unjust. This is wrong. This isn't how it should be. Why would God do this? And my answer is, ultimately, I don't know. But I will say this. If you believe in a God that's big enough and strong enough and has the power to do something about everything, and because he didn't, that's why you're screaming unfair, unjust, that's why you're angry. If you believe in a God like that, then you have to be open to the possibility that just because you or I don't know the reason why he would say no, that means it doesn't mean there can't be a reason. It doesn't mean that there isn't any. Because if you have a God who is great enough, strong enough to get angry at, you also have to be open to the possibility that this great, huge God knows something you don't. And he has a reason, and we just don't know. Because he's God. He's not only omnipotent, he's not only omnibenevolent, he's omniscient. He knows more than we do. Listen carefully, okay? God never said in the Bible that you and I will never suffer in this world. And many of us, we get frustrated and we get angry. We try and pray, we try and ask, we believe God says ask and you will receive and it doesn't seem to happen. We are tempted to believe because those prayers aren't answered the way we want that God doesn't exist, that he's not there. What kind of God would allow even those prayers not to be answered? And I'm going to say this, for those of us who have been tempted this way, if you get rid of the idea of God, if you remove the idea of heaven, it will still not relieve your suffering one bit. You will still have those questions, but it will make you worse. You will still be angry. Here's why. If there is nothing else beyond just this world, if there is no God, if there is no heaven, we want to get rid of all that idea, if it's just here and now, then all you have is here and now. And if that's true, then all you have is people, biology, and nature, where things just happen because it happens, where it's the survival of the fittest, where the strong survive and the weak don't, where the strong eat the weak. You can't go to nature and be angry and say, this is bad, this is unfair, this is unjust. Why? Because nature is just nature. And feelings, feelings like anger and feelings like love and happiness and compassion, those are just chemical reactions, stimulated neurons firing in your brain to create emotions to allow a species to survive and multiply. It's just biology. It's all it is. Nature just does what it does. Why? Because it just is. There's no rhyme or reason. You get rid of the idea of something else out there, God out there. That's what you've got to deal with. But deep down, you and I know 
We don't think that way. Can you imagine someone sick in your family and you go to this person, you know, sorry, mom, I know you're sick, I know it's hard, but it's just nature. You must have some weak genes. Of course not. You experience pain. You experience suffering. Suffering is any kind of loss. You know how you feel. You know deep down, this is just bad. This is wrong. This is not the way it should be, and it feels unfair and unjust. That's how we feel. And so today in our culture, our secular culture, that we've been trying to figure this out, but we're trying to do this without God in the picture to no avail. Still angry, still frustrated, but worse, still without hope. Listen to this, okay? I think deep down we know that this world isn't the way it should be. And we also know that it just can't be biology and nature. That there is something more than just what we see, hear, touch, taste, and smell that gives real meaning and purpose and wholeness. I think deep down we know that if we think this world isn't the way it should be, it's because deep down we want a world where things are the way they should be, where we can get legitimately angry because we can say this is good and this is bad for everyone, where fairness and justice aren't just social and cultural constructs, where meaning and purpose and satisfaction can actually be achieved complete and whole. We want a world like that. That's why C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says this, quote, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You can't fix something broken with more broken parts. You need something new, something bigger, something greater, something outside just here and now, just in this world. We need a hope in this world that the world can't provide. An otherworldly kind of hope that gives us strength to persevere through this world's pain and loss, to be justified in our grief and our sadness and our suffering, to be able to say completely and absolutely, this isn't it, this isn't right and it's messed up. And to be able to pray, Lord, help us, because this world cannot be our home. Now go back to the Lord's Prayer. Now you know why the Lord's Prayer is so heavenly-minded. Now you know why the Lord's Prayer is so otherworldly to remind us as we pray this that this world can never be our final home. It's never perfect. It's so damaged in many ways. We are reminded as we pray the Lord's prayers, not so much this world and things we lack or lose, but we are reminded in the Lord's prayer what we have in spite of what we lose, that we've gained a Father in heaven, that we've gained a brother in Jesus Christ, and through him and because of what he's done, we've gained the other world. We pray for tomorrow's bread to get a taste of that right now. To tell us that everything wrong needs to be righted, every loss, every pain needs to be restored. To trust in Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth, well, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
and death shall be no more, and no more crying, no more pain, for these things have passed away. Because the one who's seated on the throne says, behold, I am making everything new. How? You know how. You know in Gethsemane, Jesus was there just before he's crucified. You know what he did. He prayed. And God said no. He said, God, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. I don't want to go through this if it's your will. And God said no. And he suffered. He suffered like no one else has and no one else will. Why? In order to bring you to his Father, to give you the Holy Spirit, to bring you into his home. To give you, not everything you think you need here and now, but to give you more than just here and now, the hope of heaven. The hope that things can and are destined to be better. Maybe through inevitable loss, suffering, even death, but ultimately, if not now, tomorrow. I don't know if those of you in the 50s, I know there's only a handful of us feel this, but I feel like as I get older, what becomes more and more important to me is not what I've done or could have done. It's the people. It's the loved ones. It's, it's the family. It's the friends. And the hope of being with them forever and the fear of losing them becomes bigger. Did you know uh, many professors believe, many scholars believe that when we go to heaven, no matter who has passed away in your life, past, present, or future, when we get there, it will be like everyone's there at the same time. You know why? There's no time in heaven. That's what they say. There's no time in heaven. So when we get to heaven, in a blink of an eye, sold everybody else all together. I think the Lord's Prayer helps to capture that hope. That's why we're called to pray. That's why it's the model prayer. And I think we struggle to capture that, many of us in our lives. If you do, I think this is what should happen. Uh, let me just end with this. In May of 19, uh, 2023, New York pastor, Tim Keller, you probably heard of him, passes away from pancreatic cancer at the age of 72. And on his deathbed, this is what he says, and to me, this is, I hope to say, but I probably won't, but it is probably one of the most thorough applications of the Lord's Prayer. This is what he says. I'm thankful for all the people who prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me, but I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. There is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. That's what he says when he passes away. There is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. That's the man who has hope. That's the man who knew, I think, what Jesus was trying to teach. And I pray that as we continue to struggle with what we ever, whatever it is we struggle with, that we come to the Lord's Prayer and are reminded the same. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We say it again and again. It just comes out of our lips many times, but sometimes in our hearts, we are still so greedy. We want what we want. We work for what we want. We pray that you would give what we want. But I pray that we would understand the heart of a father who not only knows what's best, but gives what's ultimately the best. That in the midst of what we don't have, even now, as hard, as long, as difficult as it might feel, or it is a temporary thing compared to eternity. And so we pray, now and then, break into our world, remind us again. Without you, it's still meaningless. With you, we could have hope. And so, Lord, we pray. Give us the strength to endure, to persevere. Give us the ability to give thanks for our blessings right now. Give us the hope that helps us persevere and to look forward to what you have done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.